spell my name right? L O V A T O. Yeah, look at that. Good job. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just want to track like you know where you know how you got to this point from the start to yeah, the... the story. Right. You know. Um, and I hope it will be enjoyable for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like talking about myself. Rad. All right, so I guess this is the beginning of episode twenty-six of Side Kickback Radio. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. And I'm yeah. sitting here with uh, Tony Lovato of Nest. Yep. Hey, Tony. Hi. How's it going? Good, man. Cool. Uh, it's July 3rd, 2015, and uh, we're sitting here in Lake Havasu City, and I can hear London. Yeah, you're screaming. screaming. Do, you, do you normally say the date like that, even though you're going to show it at a later time? Yeah, because... You don't I, care if people... I keep a, like, a, it's kind of like a time capsule for me. Okay. You know, like, um, as a way of being like, what was I doing that day? Because some people do these podcasts, and then they'll, they know when it's going to air, so they don't say yeah. the date. Just wondering. Okay. Sort of being honest. I like that. Yeah. Okay. But also, like, when I, you know, a few years from now, when I listen, and I'm like, You'll remember. July 3rd, 2015. Wow. He was sitting. That, I was, I was, you know, we swam all day. We and... swam all day. <laughs> I sat in front of you half naked. <laughs> That's right. And uh, London farted. London farted a lot. Yes. He is my son. <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> cool. Um, so let's uh, uh, begin at the beginning. I mean, uh, you're from Chicago originally, right? Yep, south side of Chicago in a small town uh, called Blue Island that was actually developed before Chicago. It's been around longer than Chicago. Um, so there's a lot of history there. And a lot of history with my family there, actually. Um, if you do like, if you do research on Blue Island, you'll see, I mean, there's, there's just tons and tons of history within that town from... Like the Italian immigrants and the Polish immigrants to gangs, like a lot of shit that you would you wouldn't expect for such a small town for so much history to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, recently, I found out because I was visiting some relatives in Las Vegas, some of my Italian relatives. That so I grew up on the west side, and and the east side was the majority of Italians, Italians, and there's like a little Poland and little Italy, but mostly little Italy. There's more of them. Um, but like growing up, um, all of my Italian friends, but they're like Italian pride, <laughs> trying to be good at soccer and shit. And they would always like, you know, like sort of gleam in the, is that a word gleam? I don't know. But <laughs> they, they would like peacock a lot. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, you know, <laughs> you like there was, this, you there was that's like an Irish jig too. So that's sort of weird. <laughs> um, no, they were so proud of being Italian and being from little Italy and all this stuff. And there was a church called St. Donata's church. And then we had a festival on the east side of here called St. Donatus Fest, and it was huge. And um, they sort of claimed that territory, and then we were the west side kids. And we had our little park, Memorial Park uh, Festival in the park sort of thing, not uh-huh. quite as extravagant. But uh, come to find out that my great uncle, because my, when my immigrants, my immigrants, when my relatives who were immigrants, they were Italian immigrants, first moved here, they moved to Blue Island on the east side. They started, my great-great-uncle started St. Donata's Church, and he actually named it St. Donata's Church because the little community that um, in Italy where they grew up, the saint that was from there in the Catholic religion, mm-hmm. was Donata. So he named it St. Donata's Church. So, my, so now I can go back home, and I actually did do this already. I let everybody know that I was so proud of being on the east side that that was their neighborhood that my family actually started that neighborhood <laughs> and named, and started the church and named it and everything. So, wow. like, the St. Donatus Fest was yeah. my relatives. Nice. And then uh, there's a lot of stuff that I haven't found out yet about. We have, like, I guess a crazy, crazy amount of mob ties, which I didn't. <laughs> like, my grandfather, before he passed away, 
he gave me this little card and it said mafia good member in good standing and uh-huh. i didn't think that it was ever real or anything. i didn't know what the fuck it was so i kept it but then and that was on my dad's side but then on my mom's side i found out that we're like got some crazy like italian mob ties that i've yeah. got to hear the stories i gotta get up back out to vegas because my aunt rita's like 85 years old so i want to sit down with her like with a recorder yeah and find out those stories and, yeah because the females in the families always write history down say pictures and remember stuff uh-huh. and the males usually don't so i need <laughs> to like get down there and yeah record everything and cool but yeah from the so, south side of chicago nice yeah um and so i as i believe you you started playing in in bands at a really early age. Yeah. And I imagine it was guitar, right? No, no. No? Drums? Wait, was it? No, yeah. Okay, so I got a guitar when I was seven years old, which I still have. I think it's actually, it might be in there. That actually might be. But that was my second guitar. Um, I got a guitar when I was in second grade, seven years old. Um, my brother got a drum set, and then my cousin Matt got a bass guitar because it was like the last instrument that was left. So we were like, dude, you got to be the bass. <laughs> and he still talks about it to this day. Like, he'll just complain because he's like, dude, I didn't want to play the fucking bass. Like, I just, <laughs> I was stuck with, that was the last instrument. Like, nobody wants to be the bassist. Yeah, and he didn't play anything before, so it was just like, right. you're, <laughs> you We actually had, so it was me, my, my brother, my cousin Matt, and my cousin Eric. We were going to form a band. We were really young, and we were clueless on to like, even instruments and what we were going to do because my dad was a musician so we always had guitars and drum sets and stuff around the house um and when i was uh my cousin eric his father my uncle larry and my dad were in a band together so my dad played guitar and sang my uncle larry he played drums and then my mom's brother played guitar in my dad's band so when we were forming that first band or the idea of it. <laughs> we didn't really know what we were going to do, and we liked Beastie Boys a lot, too. Yeah. So we just found shit around the house and made instruments. Like, I remember we, we didn't have turntables, so we found that if you took this old suitcase that we had in a ruler and scratched it, it sounded like... The vinyl scratching. Yeah, scratching, yeah. Yeah. So somebody did that. <laughs> I think somebody got a fucking keyboard, which didn't really help for much because it was a real instrument, so it sort of screwed up everything. <laughs> and then we had, like, pots and pans, just, like, weird shit that we would make instruments out of, and... That didn't really last. Um, but then we got real instruments. We started a metal band called Fallen Angels. And, and what age was this at? I was seven. My brother was nine. My cousin Matt was eight. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, I have I have a picture somewhere you could didn't see. Didn't even it. hit double digits and you're in a metal band. Yeah. <laughs> and But like we would play, <clears throat> and I couldn't play guitar, so I would play single notes, like as if I was playing the bass guitar. And then every time I would have to sing, I would just stop playing completely. So it would just be my brother playing the drums terribly and my cousin playing the bass terribly. <laughs> and <clears throat> we did like Satisfaction by Rolling Stones. Um, we tried to cover like some Judas Priest songs, like shit that like my dad sort of raised us on. So we were pretty like fucking, you know, we were young little, little fucking metal. <laughs> little metal runs. Yeah, man. Like my first record <laughs> that my dad ever bought me was Motley Cruise Theater of Pain, mm-hmm. that and a Walkman. And my brother got like one of Ozzy Osbourne's solo records, but uh, yeah, we were we were really young. We played one show, and we charged the neighborhood kids a quarter to get in. Uh, I think we made a dollar twenty-five, and then we had a, a tip or like a like a, not a tip jar, but like a note jar to like leave us tips, idea you know like feedback, us, yeah, feedback, yeah. <laughs> and all I remember, the most thing that stuck out to me was that 
Uh, everybody just said that I sucked at singing. <laughs> and like when you're seven, it's just so brutal. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. So. Okay. Well, um, so yeah, you begin at an early age, but it, I imagine, obviously, it keeps going, <coughs> or did you No, actually, or... um, we, I, I eventually got sick of the guitar. It was too hard. So then I started playing drums. Um, and I learned how to play the drums at a really, really young age, and I loved it. Like, I was pretty good at the drums at a small, like, a nine-year-old, like, pretty good on the drum set. Like, it's pretty rad looking. Mm-hmm. But because um, we sort of had a rule in our house where, like, you could play music whenever you wanted. Like, it just wasn't, my parents didn't complain. They were all for it. And my dad would play with us, too. So my brother and because he was a couple of years older, like he eventually became friends with other musicians and stuff. So they'd go downstairs and jam a lot. And my brother learned how to play the guitar, actually. So we switched. And um, there was always a lot of music in the basement. So as a kid growing up, I hated, I, st- I like rebelled against it because I hated noise in the house all yeah. the fucking time. It was never quiet. Huh. So I ended up resenting music. So I never wanted to be part of it. And then whenever my brother's friends would come over, my brother would want to play guitar and like one of his friends would want to yell into the microphone. So there'd be like a bunch of teenagers downstairs and they'd be like, they would force me to come downstairs and play drums and I wouldn't want to. Mm-hmm. So then they'd always have like a girl come upstairs and be like, Hey dude. <laughs> and then I was just, it wasn't even like that. It was a girl that I wanted to go impress. Her. I was just so embarrassed that she was asking me uh-huh. that I wanted that moment to end. <laughs> so I would just give in and go downstairs and play the drums. So yeah. So I actually resented music for years and I wanted literally nothing to do with it. Oh wow. Yeah. How long did that last? Um, it lasted a while, like, cause I was into sports and shit too. Like I played hockey Mm -hmm. and played baseball on road dirt bikes and shit like that. So it lasted for a while. And then, uh, I think maybe when I was 12 years old, I gave in and joined one of my brother's (laughs) bands. Uh I was in seventh grade and then we formed this band called the Cosmic Frogs, which was (laughs) awesome name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which was like an alternative rock band. It was a senior in high school named Jake something. And then my brother played guitar. I played bass. And Jeremiah, who plays guitar in Mest, he was the singer. Mm. And we played like one talent show at Eisenhower High School. And it was awesome because the auditorium was packed. So for me to be like in seventh grade and I had like Doc Martin boots on and like shorts down the hair and a flannel on <laughs> and like. And you're playing a packed house at Eisenhower yeah, High School. Yeah, it was fucking, it was really fun. So we did that. And, and so the, did that kind of kind of get that spark going in you of performing yeah. and yeah that was that was yeah i mean yeah, yeah that was fun again i mean i think i was in seventh grade and then when i was i think late eighth grade into like freshman year there was another band that i was in where i played the drums and it was just the people that i hung out with at the time and the lyrical content of the band was mm-hmm. nothing that I was necessarily comfortable with, but I just kept doing it because when you grow up in a neighborhood, you sort of hang out with your crowd and the people that are around you. Mm-hmm. And it was a bunch of gang members. Uh-huh. And so we did that for a couple of years. No, not a couple of years. I was 12, I think 12 to 13. And then I was like, I don't really want to hang out with these people anymore. They're sort of scumbags. And like, and then at that point, I was just like, fuck this. And we we all stopped, actually. It was me, my brother, and my cousin, and we wanted nothing to do with that crowd, so we stopped hanging out with them. And there was a lot of backlash from that because in the neighborhood, you sort of like, if you leave your quote-unquote gang, then you're sort of traitors. And, yeah. then, and they don't like you. And then the people that 
didn't like you because you were part of them, they still don't like you. Because <laughs> you have former affiliations. Because you have former affiliations. Yeah. So then it was a thing where it was like we were just on our own. Yeah. No man's land. Yeah. So luckily we grew up on a dead end block and where my dad grew up across the street. Um, and then my uncle David had bought that house, Matt, the bassist, his father. We eventually we moved out. We lived in Cayman Park, which is like the ghetto. We moved out of there when I was six into Blue Island across the street from there. So this block, like my family's had for 60 odd years, mm-hmm. like it's been our block. So that was our little safe haven that we hung out. And um, I reconnected with some friends that I was like friends with in fourth and fifth grade. And they introduced me to who eventually became the drummer of Mass, uh, Nick. Um, but we sort of had our small little clique and this kid that uh, one of our friends had moved into my house. Cause my parents were the parents that always um, took everybody in. But uh, so, yeah, so after that ended, we sort of formed our own small little group of friends, hung out on our own and got into like the world of punk rock. And uh-huh. and it was sort of like a little savior because we were all, I was always into like hardcore and oi music and like the gnarly punk rock stuff. And then I was like, and then all of a sudden I got introduced to like Operation Ivy and Green Day and these melodic sort of punk rock bands that mm-hmm. sang and wrote decent songs where if you played on like an acoustic guitar, it would actually sound like a song. Yeah. And so I sort of, we, I sort of fell in love with that. And at that point, that's when I decided, I was like, I don't want to play drums anymore. Like I want to learn how to play the guitar and I want to write songs. Mm-hmm. And that's when that sort of began. Yeah. And this was now at what age? Um, probably about 15 years old. Okay. So you're starting point. to get into high school. Yeah. Which I, I talk about a lot with my guests because it's such a formative time for us. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you're in high school at this time that you discover that, you know, your voice, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you kind of fell into this no man's land socially. Yeah. So how was the rest of high school for you? I mean, that's funny in terms of you're starting it in this place of no man's land, finding your voice as a, as a musician. Well, when I started, I started high school when I was 14 Mm -hmm. and was still involved with the gangs and stuff. Uh huh. Freshman year. All my friends were seniors because they were my brother's friends. I had like, nope, I didn't have any friends my age. They were all older kids. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think I, I hated high school so much from the start. I never went to school as a kid. Mm -hmm. So like, let me just rewind to eighth grade. Eighth grade, I had a scholarship, a pending scholarship to a high school called Brother Rice High School. The sister school is Mother Macaulay. That's where Jenny McCarthy went, mm-hmm. the blonde playmate yeah. Yeah. chick. Um, so in eighth grade, um, I went and practiced with this team a couple times, and they were like, okay, you could um, have a scholarship because you have to pay for Catholic school. We They were going to pay for it as long as I played on the hockey team. <clears throat> and I went and took all the tests, and I was in like the uh, higher education classes growing up. the um, Advanced. The advanced, yeah, advanced classes. So I took all the tests and I did great on all the tests. They called me back and they're like, yeah, dude, you fucking, you killed it. Like, you're super smart. That's awesome. We want you on our hockey team. But you missed 64 days of school your eighth grade year. And like, that's equivalent to three months if you think about it in the aspect that you only go 20 days a yeah. month. So I missed equivalent to like three months of school because uh-huh. I just didn't go to school a lot. And uh, so they're like, you're not Brother Ice material because of that alone. Huh. So I lost the scholarship. Hockey dream was over with. And this was after they gave. Uh, this was after they said we want you. Yeah. And yeah. then they looked at your records and were like, never mind. Yeah. They're like, you're smart. 
<laughs> grades are great. You did great on the test. You can play we hockey. We want you to play hockey, but mm. you don't go to school, and we don't allow that. Ugh. So they were like, you're not, they're literally their words were, you're not Brother Rice material. Wow. So that dream was gone. And so then I was like, fuck it, now I got to go to Eisenhower. Uh-huh. And Eisenhower is like the shitty school in our neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, there's Eisenhower, and then there's, um, what was the other one called? Uh, I'll say Ham or something. I'm trying to think. It was where Kanye West went. We had a nice school in our neighborhood and a shitty school. And it was really hard to get in. You had to know somebody to get into this one. Or you had to be like a friend of mine. She was like 5% Indian, so they pulled that card, and she got in. <laughs> um, but this is the high school that Kanye West went to. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like a senior when I was a freshman. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so then, so those dreams were over with and then I was like, fuck it. Okay. I'm going to public school, which was terrible because within like the first year it was just like, I got suspended so many times I got in just a shit ton of fights. And then, uh, I was put on probation and then I was like, look, I'm done with school. I'm not going to go anymore. And they're like, you have to, cause you're not 16 yet. So they made a compromise for me and they put me on a work program, but you can't be on the work program until you're 16 years old because you can't legally like leave school and work and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So they gave me work program hours, but I didn't have to do the work program. So I literally went from school like from like eight in the morning till 1230 and I got out at 1230, which was fantastic. Nice. <laughs> so I stayed in school freshman year and made it to sophomore year and I was already on probation sophomore year and it was just this thing where I would like... Because it was so easy. Once you enter high school, you can you can walk out the front doors. Mm-hmm. But for some reason in grade school, there's such a fear of ditching school. Like you get in, I feel like you get in so much more trouble when you're in eighth grade. But when you're in high school and you ditch, you get like a detention. Uh-huh. But if you did that in like seventh grade, your parents would be called. It would be like this huge, huge thing. Once I learned that like those front doors were open, mm-hmm. I was done. <laughs> I would like literally I would make it to school and I'd be like, fuck, I'm awake, whatever. Yeah. So I'd go to school. I'd be like in second period, the bell would ring. I'd go to walking to like third period and I would see the doors and I'm just like, no. And I'd go to class and then I'd be sitting there and I'd be like, fuck this. I got to go to the bathroom and then I just wouldn't come back. Yeah. And where would you go? Walk home. Go home? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it was just, I just was done with it. And then so I was was in a lot of trouble. So what happened was because referral was just normally a detention and then detention turned into a Saturday detention. If you didn't go to your Saturday detention, you got a three-day suspension. But I was so backed up in detentions. I was fully booked on detentions, fully booked on Saturday detentions, and I would just never go to any of them anyways, mm-hmm. that it was like any time that anything would happen, I'd get a three-day suspension. So I'd get a three-day suspension and come back on Thursday, get in trouble that day, Friday, be kicked out for the next two days. And that just happened for three months, and then finally... They had a, I had to have the meeting with the board and I sat there and they were like, we're expelling you from school. You've missed, I think in the first three months, I missed 30 days. Huh. And they're like, do you have anything to say for yourself? And I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm good. I don't want to be here anyways. Like, and at that point though in my life, I had already started playing music yeah. and learning how to play the guitar. And that's what I knew that that's exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so my thing was, like, nothing in high school is going to prepare me. I mean, high school, I don't think, prepares a lot of kids for the real world anyways. I think they really need to reevaluate what they're do, what they're teaching yeah. kids. Like, you always see those memes. It's like, I don't know anything about mortgages or taxes, but I know the cells in a fucking leaf. Like, there's certain things that we should be teaching these kids, at least, I think, in the third and fourth year. Yeah. Like, first and second year, if you want to do that shit, keep them in the normal routine of learning stupid shit that you don't need to know. But I think you should have the options 
Because most kids leave high school because of that. Because they're like, well, I'm not going to figure anything out. I might as well start working now. Because when I leave high school, I'm going to work a normal yeah. carpenter job or a plumber or shit like that. You know, kids that aren't going to go to college. But uh-huh. if high school set these kids up, you know, that's yeah. way off. No, Fucking. It's, it's all interesting. But, um... Would you say that um, part of the thing that was calling you to the door was the fact that you're discovering this side of the musical side of yourself? Yeah. And and like you're like, I wouldn't say it's like you need to express yourself, but that those doors are open to you to go home and at least work on your music or have that, you know? Yeah, it was it was a little bit of that mixed with the average social awkwardness of a fifteen year old kid. Mm-hmm who wasn't comfortable in his own skin yeah. and didn't have any friends. And it was like, the only person that was left in high school was my brother because he turned into a fifth-year senior. Uh-huh. He skipped second grade. He was so smart, he went from first grade to third grade. But then he did five years in high school, so he made it up. <laughs> um, but literally, that was, yeah, that was like the only person I knew was like my brother and my cousin Matt. And um, so like high, being in high school itself, in that building was just awkward for me because I didn't fit in with any crowd. Like there wasn't, there wasn't a bunch of other punk rock kids or skater mm-hmm. kids or anything like that. It was mostly just, and we didn't really have that high school either where there was like the cool kids and the dorky kids and the jocks and then the theater kids. It wasn't like that. Everybody was just sort of themselves. Like it wasn't, mm. but I didn't fit. I just didn't, I don't know. I, I was uncomfortable, man. Yeah. So the second I could walk out those doors and yeah. go home, I was comfortable again. Gotcha. So for me, it was just like, you know, yeah. and then, that was the thing is I could go home and fucking play music and do shit like that, yeah. you know, like, so yeah, that was definitely, it was a, it was an escape. Yeah. Escape route. So, um, during this time, is there, I usually ask my guests, like if you go back in time and you look at your CD player or what, or tape cassette player, depending right. on which you had, is there, do you see an album in there? Like specifically, um, one in particular? I was that age. During this time, yeah, that you were. Um, running out those front doors. There was a couple bands that we, like, as our little group, religiously listened to, which would be like, we were trying to prove our punkness, I think. So we were <laughs> listening to, like, Minor Threat, uh-huh. um, Operation Ivy, Green Day Dookie, um, No Effects, uh, Punk and Drublick. I think that was the one. Bad Religion. Um, so a steady diet of punk rock. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a steady <laughs> yeah. diet of punk rock. But like Green Day was probably my ultimate like favorite band uh-huh. at that time. Yeah. For sure. Like they were the game changer for me, yeah. so to speak. Gotcha. So it, you're expelled from school. And then what happens after that? Um, I got expelled from school. And then technically I had to enroll in homeschooling. But beat the system. I found a program that was a go at your own pace. Because I was on probation. Yeah. For like some other cases that I was involved in as a delinquent. Um, so because I was on probation, my probation officer, when she found out that I was out of school, that wasn't okay. Because yeah. it's not legal. I'm not 16 yet. Yeah. So I enrolled in a fucking program. I had to pay like 400 bucks and it was a go at your own pace. And she'd come over and I'd bullshit her and tell her like, yeah, I'm doing this and doing that. And she wouldn't know. She couldn't check on anything. So uh-huh. I said, wait till I was 16. Then I was like, fuck you. I haven't been doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, um, 
that was the point where it was like my dad was like well what are you gonna do and i was like i want to play music like did we have this we're starting this band we had started mast i think it was october oh. of 1995 okay so you're 15 yeah okay so we started mast and <clears throat> and that's i knew that's what i wanted to do i knew that's what i was gonna do and um my parents supported it because my dad was a musician growing up and he always wanted to do it. And my parents were, are totally the parents that have always just did the unconditional love sort of thing. My parents were the parents that took in all the neighborhood kids that their parents fucking kicked out. I mean, I had every one of my friends at some point staying or living at my house. Mm -hmm. I had one friend who lived at my house for seven years. He eventually became my guitar tech and we traveled the world together. Like, <laughs> um, like my parents are the parents that... They live out here now, but when they lived in Chicago and all the people that we grew up with, whenever they'd go home and see their parents, everybody would stop over and see my parents. Like mm -hmm. that was, um, and my dad was that way with everybody in the neighborhood. So they've always been supportive and I know I wanted to do the band and at first it just started out as a fun thing, but my dad would help us out. Like, I mean, my dad would get on the phone with like booking agents of these bands that I looked up to and eventually toured with, but at the time were the bigger punk rock bands and we got a hold of some booking agent somehow, sent her a tape. She liked it, so she would have conversations with my dad here and there and just give us advice and stuff. And I think it was Stormy Shepard, who was like one of the biggest booking agents in punk rock ever. Mm -hmm. But she would like take time and talk to my dad. And she like gave us a lot of boost of confidence too because she she talked about the songs. She was she liked the song. She was like, "There's something there. These guys are really young, and they could always already write these types of songs." She's like, "You know, they're a punk rock band, but they're a little bit more than that. You know, like they're not just in that realm. Like they write good songs. Mm -hmm. Not the punk rock songs aren't good songs, but um, so my dad would like help us book like, shows. Did and, she mean like catchy songs or? Yeah, she was like, "These are also this, songs that could be played on the radio." Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it was right. like it wasn't like commercially attractive, so right? To speak. Yeah, yeah, it was more along the lines of like the Green Days and stuff like that, where it's it's at the core, it's pop punk and a punk rock band, but it has an appeal to a wider mm -hmm. audience, which is cool to hear from her because you know she had, she knows it. She, she knows yeah, the business. Like, she booked yeah. everybody. And the most credible punk rock bands, too. So, like, she wasn't saying it in a bad way. She was saying it in a, like, you, you got something here. Mm -hmm. um, so my dad would book us shows, and we would... There was a place on the south side of Chicago called Off the Alley, which is, like, the cool punk rock club that everybody wanted to play, and everybody played. And we started playing there on a regular basis. And we teamed up with some other local bands in our area, or from our, like, little town, Blue Island, and surrounding suburbs. And uh, we'd fucking pack the place every time we'd played. You know, like, we, we got a pretty good little following right away because we sort of got our shit together before we went out you know and like showed ourselves to everybody and so there was off the alley in homewood illinois on the south side of chicago and then there was fireside bowl which was the punk rock bowling alley it was a bowling alley but then there was a little stage and they would have <laughs> punk rock shows and it was i've seen some of the raddest shows there um <clears throat> so we just bounced back and forth from those places and then we would rent out vw halls like we'd rent out like vw halls and like get like plain white tees to open up for us this is like back <laughs> in the day like they were from the neighborhood you know yeah um and uh so we just started doing that and my dad would help us and we went into the studio recorded our first demo which was real to real it wasn't even on pro tools and we released it on a tape and made like a hundred yeah 100 nice. 200 copies and like when you see kids with them it's crazy because i'm like fuck i can't believe like some kids still have them from back in the day yeah 
But we just did that. We recorded our first little demo and started selling that and we play skate parks and shit and um so we was doing that for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then uh when did yeah, when did the touring kind of come into it? So that was so we started in 95, recorded our first demo in 96, which was called Dat Dat Uh-oh. Because that was the only thing my nephew Brandon could say when he was a little baby. <laughs> he'd always point at stuff and go, dat, dat. And then something would happen and you go, uh-oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> so that like, that's what we named it. Um, and then we got a little bit more money together. And we went into a little bit of a nicer studio. And recorded our first record, which is called Mo Money, More 40s. Which recorded in 1997 and 1998. Self-released that. And through releasing that, um, and then... Like, I was just that little, like, hustler kid that would probably annoying slash hustling kid yeah. that would go to every show of every band I liked and would stand by the back door or wait till the fucking show was completely over with and I knew the band had to come out to go to their tour bus and stop them and talk to them for a little bit and take pictures and give them a CD. And I did that to every band I could think of. Mm. And I'd crowd surf and fucking whip CDs on stage <laughs> and shit with little notes in them, you know? And... This I want to sort of take credit for this trend because it seriously started happening after I sort of did it. Yeah. So um, right around 98-ish, the end of 1998, um, I went to see Goldfinger uh, play at, a, at Fireside Bowl, this little secret show. Mm -hmm. And I know these two sluts that fuck around with band dudes all the time and we were friends <laughs> with them. And they were waiting in line, so we're like, fuck it. So we went to the front of the line, because they were going to do like two shows, because it's mm -hmm. such a small place. So we just went right into the front, and went into the first show, and um, afterwards I went up, to, and our, our friends at the time, a band called Show Off, who eventually got signed to Maverick before us, um, they opened up the show. And uh, so I went up to John, and I was the singer of Goldfinger, and I was like, hey man, um... You know, you said next time that you came to Chicago that we could open for you. And he was like, oh, dude, I'm fucking, I'm sorry, dude, I forgot. Here, get a pen and paper, take down my home phone number. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, the, him saying that we could open up for him uh -huh. was like a random conversation that I'd had with him one of those times that I was being that annoying kid outside yeah. of the show. And I didn't fully take it serious, but I was like, well, he said it, so I'm going to say it to him and see what, how he reacts. Uh -huh. And so... I went and got a fucking pen and paper, <laughs> and I wrote down his fucking home phone number. He was like, keep in touch with me. Next time we come to Chicago, you guys can open up. And I was like, cool, dude, thanks. I put it in my pocket, like went up as the annoying kid and told the drummer of Goldfinger, hey, next time we're in town, we're opening up for you. And he's like, cool, dude. Like, what the fuck are you telling me <laughs> cool this Cool random part? kid. Yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> and so uh, John was actually working with Show Off at the time. He... um. Got, he eventually got them a deal at Maverick, and they did one record. It was a really good record. Um, but he became an A&R for Maverick Records, Madonna's label, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. And the fuck, the trippy thing about this whole story is that, so when I was, when we were recording Mo Money More 40s, and we'd be on the way to the studio, we'd be like drinking a little bit of booze, hanging out or whatever, like on our way to the studio, and I would have these weird daydreams in my head that I was going, like, little fascinations, little fake worlds, that we were going to the studio and that John Feldman was going to be producing our record. He wasn't a producer yet. He hadn't produced show off. Like, he didn't do any of that. He was just a singer of my one of my favorite bands. Uh -huh. So I had these fake thoughts in my head, like, it'd be rad if we were in the studio and John was doing it. And I remember I brought the CD in and I was like, I want the production to sound like this, you know. And 
And then I remember walking down the street when I was like 16 years old or so and thinking to myself, like, I wonder what it would feel like to be walking down the street one day and have somebody recognize me just for playing music, like how trippy that would be. So I sort of like let that whole feeling like go over me and like, and I sort of like, I felt it inside of me. God, there would be, you know, like there was this weird little rush in my body and my head. It's just like the whole thing of like, I believe in like using the universe for what you want in life, like the stuff you put out there, the stuff you think like. So I was able to like literally two years after I had these weird thoughts when we were doing our own little record, I'm at my girlfriend's house when I was 18 and her phone rings and it's like fucking two in the morning and she answers it and she's like, hey, it's for you. It's John Feldman. (laughs) And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah. So I'm like, hey, dude, what's up? And he's like, hey, man, it's John Feldman. He's all hyper and shit because the dude's hyper as fuck. And he's like, hey, man, sorry, uh, I called your house, but your parents said you were over at your girlfriend's house. And I was like, yeah. I'm like, what's up, man? And he's like, you still got that band? And I was like, yeah, man, we're still playing shows. Like, we're still doing stuff. And he's like, okay, cool, man. So uh, I'm going to finish up this record I'm doing right now. And then I I talked to Guy Osiri over at Maverick Records, who is, he's Madonna's manager now, but he was the vice president or president at the time, I think. Um, He's like, I talked to Guy Osiri and I told him about you guys. And so in like a couple months, I'm going to fly you guys out here. I'm going to, you know, get like a demo deal and fly you guys out here and we'll record some songs. And I was like, cool, dude. (laughs) Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, But okay, so before that happened, though, we actually did play the show where we were supposed to open up for Goldfinger. Mm -hmm. So I found out Goldfinger was coming to town. I remember I was at a party, a friend's house. They were having a little party. And this fucking dorky kid comes up to me in front of like a bunch of people. And he's like, hey, man, I thought you were going to open up for Goldfinger next time they're coming to town. And I was like, yeah, we are. And he's like, really? Well, they're coming to town next month. And I was like, they are? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, fuck, I didn't know. So in my head, I'm just going, okay, I got to get a hold of him to let him know. But this kid was trying to call me out yeah. <laughs> to like make, you know. He's clowning on you. Yeah. So sure enough, I fucking uh, call his house. He's like, yeah, dude, I'll work that out for you. Called his man. Uh, he gave me his manager's number, John Reese, who now does like, I mean, John Reese is the guy that books anything you can think of, like the Rob Zombie thing he owns, Taste of Chaos. He does all the Warped stuff with Kevin, like. I actually just talked to him. He actually has a house out here, too. Huh. Um, got a hold of John Reese. My dad talked to him. They worked it out, and we opened up for Goldfinger, which was fucking huge for us. Like, yeah. And we had a lot of fans there singing all the words to our song. So he saw that, and he was like, okay, cool. Like, There's something there. So it was a couple months after that that he actually called me. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. The rest of my band was super negative, and they uh-huh. were like, I was like, let's stop playing shows and just write music. Uh-huh. And... They didn't want to do that. They were like, dude, who, it's just fucking, they let, this dude let us open up one show. He's not going to do anything for a band. I was like, dude, like, he said he likes our band. He wants to work with us next, this and that. So when I got that phone call. The 2 a.m. Yeah. From your girlfriend. Yeah. It was like, you know, it was cool for me to then go back to the band and be like, hey, so John called me. We're going to do this, you know. And so yeah, another like four months passed or so. Uh, around 1999, I was at work at a place called the Martinique. And my girlfriend's mom was a manager. We all worked there. It was a lot of fun. Fucking, we were like, we did, it's like a dinner theater mm-hmm. show. So we all had like a little <laughs> bow ties and served people. And really what we did was we would go in the back and like huff cans of like, like do whippets <laughs> and then just get hammered and serve people. And it was like the funnest job ever. <laughs> like I almost burnt the whole place down. Wow. <laughs> there was one of those like, big i think like a greek wedding going on and they run around with the cake with the little fire on top yeah and it's really just a canister with like this i don't know what's inside of it but it's like this gooey stuff that stays burning uh-huh. 
And so I was like, fuck it. So I like joined in the line and grabbed a piece of cake and like was doing it. Everybody and like I did this sweet spin move, not thinking about the velocity. <laughs> and this thing just flew off, hit the ground, and the whole carpet just and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> it was fucked up, man. Like I actually like I didn't get in trouble, but like it was more like that my girlfriend's at the time, her mom was disappointed. <laughs> she, she was like, She's not mad. She's like, I'm, she's yeah, she's like, I'm happy that you were trying to help out. She's like, but he almost burned the entire and this place was <laughs> massive too. Um but so then he called me at work. And had another one of those conversations. This and is John. John Feldman. John Feldman. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so we had another one of those conversations and he was like, um, just asked me a lot about my past and wanted to know about me and all this shit. And was actually asking about the gangs and shit that I used to be associated with. Mm-hmm. Asked me if I was still tied to those dudes. And I was like, fuck no, dude. Like it's been six, seven years. I don't, you know, I hate those. I hate those people. Um so then we figured we worked it out. We got airline tickets booked um, to go to fly out to California and do a demo deal. I think they gave us like sixteen thousand dollars our budget to fly out there, stay out there for a week, record some songs, um, record four songs, and uh, the night before we decided, well, fuck it, like this is awesome. Let's have a fucking big party in my backyard. <laughs> so we have this huge party. We get fucking trashed. We don't go to bed till five in the morning, maybe or something. Uh-huh. We all wake up hammered. On our way to the, we get everybody together. We're flying. Nick's dad, Larry, is driving us to the airport, and we're so late that he doesn't give a shit. He's trying to get us there. He's literally going through red lights, and he's just holding the <laughs> horn down. He's like, "It's fine. I'm using my horn." And he's just flying through red lights, and we're freaking out. We get there, we miss our flight. Oh no. Like, the biggest thing of our lives, and we can't just make our fucking flight. So I have to do, the, like, the first call of many. Yeah. To rearrange everything. And disappointing just... calls that I had to make of uh-huh. the band fucking up. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, I called the manager, and I was like, hey, man, so, uh, we, so we missed our flight. And they're like, all right, so they figured out. We got on a later flight. <clears throat> and I remember, like, it's one of those things where I could remember when I first got in John Reese's truck, and we were driving out of LAX for the first time and talking to him and like looking up and seeing palm trees and shit. Cause it was the first time I'd ever been out or in California mm-hmm. and it was trippy. Like I'd still have those memories like embedded in my brain. But, uh, so we recorded four songs, um, and like went home and a week later got a phone call and they signed us, which huh. doesn't happen. Like yeah. you don't, he mostly when it comes to that shit, like labels, They'll go and check out a band and watch them play live a bunch of times. It's they just follow the band more, and it, it usually takes a lot longer than a phone call. Yeah, from one guy that goes, "Hey, I got this band. I think might be commercially successful." And they go, "Okay, here's sixteen thousand dollars." Then the band flies out. They record some songs. And they go, "Okay, cool." But the dreaded song was one of those four that got us signed. Gotcha. So, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh huh. Um. So let's let's jump ahead a little bit. I mean, to the kind of the the height of it, where you're you're touring and you got thousands of people singing your songs. I mean, what's what's that like to be on a stage and have people sing back songs that you've written? You know, yeah, it's your words. Um, I think I appreciate it. I've always appreciated it, but now, like when we played at House of Blues in Anaheim, mm-hmm. there's something about playing at this age and playing those songs and still having that connection with those people, which I wrote some of these songs 15 years ago. Yeah. 
and watching these now adults still act like they're fucking 17 year old kids having the time of their lives singing these words that they now have these memories tied to that I know they do like because I the same way that when I listen to certain songs it brings you back to that time and place where you remember that song you hear the song and you remember fuck I was going through this at point in my life or whatever and it meant that much to you and to have written essentially the partial soundtrack to a lot of these adults lives it's much more appreciated now um, back then I was just living in the moment like I loved it like it's great like it's insane that you know you could get on and the thing for us was we were so young that our fan base was our age for a lot of bands that become successful their fan base is always a little bit younger than them mm-hmm. we were so young going starting out on the road like I was I think 19 years old when we first toured with No Doubt so I was a kid like I look at 19 year olds now and I'm like fuck I was, <laughs> that's what, yeah that's how old you were yeah, when like, you started <laughs> you know like it's so weird and um but yeah it, it's one of the, it is literally the biggest high I mean I've done a lot of drugs in my life and I've been pretty fucking high at certain <laughs> points but there's no comparison to uh-huh. that connection when you're looking out and you see these people and like we've had like the weirdest moments where you're looking down and because we have we have a couple songs that are more like fuck around party-ish stupid written adolescent teen year songs yeah. teen years songs um, and then we have I mean I wrote a lot of serious shit you know like there's songs about kid from a neighbor that committed suicide and a couple of friends of mine who are super famous now so I won't name them um, their mom having a terminal illness and I wrote a song about that and so there's these very serious songs too and so these so messed fans that actually like our band they're sort of the fans that they literally own every record, know every word to every song. They've been to eight shows, you know, like that's our type of fan base. Yeah. And so to like look down and see them like having this emotional breakdown because of like lyrics that I wrote, like it's touching to me where then like then I have to control my emotions and think of the time and place where I was writing this and what it meant to me and like control it because then your throat gets all weird and you sound like fucking Donald Duck or something so like, <laughs> it gets really uncomfortable you know like you have to control your emotions yeah. when I'm singing to these people and making these visual connections with them you know yeah. but it literally is 100% the coolest most like the it, highest of highs yeah it's yeah. it's makes it literally all worth it like no matter what because I dude I've written so many songs and at this point in my life and I put out six records or something like and then I had some side projects that I put out records and EPs and shit like that. And um, there's there's something about fucking looking out and having these people like... I mean, I hate writing songs now. That's how many songs I've written. Oh. I don't wow. like... Like, I don't hate it, but it's such a frustrating thing to... There are only so many chords yeah. on a guitar. So if I hear a song on the radio, I can go, this song is this song. Yeah. And this melody is just like this melody. Mm-hmm. So when I'm writing songs now, I'm writing chords, and then I immediately identify it with a different song I wrote. Uh-huh. And then I'm trying to write lyrics that are like, okay, I want to write something that's relatable to younger kids who might buy this record. Yeah, I don't want to write songs about being a dude who's fucking 35 <laughs> and as a kid, you know? And like, so lyrically now, it's a more challenging because I have to write stuff that isn't so um, literal and yeah. it's a little more vague so people can take it differently. Like, I know the meaning behind it, but yeah. it has to have a little more of a 
wider spectrum to demeaning because back then I was just like, I'm fucking 20 years old and my girlfriend sucks. Like, I want to have sex with other girls, but then she's going to get mad at me and like, you know, like stupid, like just teenage angsty yeah. love songs. And now as a 35-year-old adult in a committed relationship with a fucking kid, <laughs> lyrical content has become a little harder to fucking, to, you know, to figure out. Yeah. But cool. Um, so George, your kind of counterpart, so to speak, on our film Highway to Havasu, he mentioned something uh, when we were on set one day. He was like, the playing for a show for him is really, it's like your entire day is built around an hour and a half. Yeah. Of your day. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? You agree with that? And like, it's, it's, it's really stressful and kind of crazy how like you wake up and then it's just waiting for this hour and a half that's later. In your yeah. Day. And that's why, and he'll vouch for this. That is why you drink so much on tour. <laughs> like 100%. It is. I, I, I was sober for a couple of years because I had to get some shit straight in my life. So I went sober and, um, I did a couple tours sober and they were fun, but, um, you really realize, okay, so you wake up and, and if you don't have anything else to do, like now when I'm on the road, I like to at least work out for an hour and a half. So that takes up a little bit of my time. Um, but if you, if it's winter time, it's from, it's cold outside. So it's bus to the venue, venue to the bus. So you're fucking <laughs> sitting there and you can only prolong it for so long before somebody's finally like, Hey man, you want to do a shot? And it's like, yeah, all right, let's do it. So you do a shot, and it feels good. And then somebody else comes on the bus, you see some friends that you haven't seen in a while. Hey, do you want a shot? And so that's why you drink so much, because you have, I mean, even if you sleep in, you're still going to have sound check around 4 o'clock. So you got to be up by 4. Yeah. And then if you're headlining, you're not going to go on until around 9, 30, 10 o'clock. So you got five hours to kill. And that's a lot of time. I mean, it's like a plane ride. Mm. Like, what the fuck? You, you know, you just, <laughs> that's why you drink on planes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's hard to like, one thing I thought about is when I start fucking touring again, stuff like that is, cause I don't want to drink as much as I used to <coughs> is just making sure that I sort of schedule out my day accordingly and try to only go out during the time of the year when it's at least nice enough outside to walk around and go do shit so I could keep busy because yeah. you will just sit there and it's yeah misery. So yeah. We, we actually, it's funny you asked that cause on our fourth our fourth record photographs it's a double disc and we had uh, a camera crew come out with us and i was like i want you guys to record everything but the shows i want people to see what uh. it is like to be on the road what the 23 hours of the day are yeah because that's what we go through and that's just one hour of the day like it's 23 hours of fucking nothing yeah and this is probably in the height of all of our drinking and shit too well no no yeah, maybe we were drinking, but back in the early 2000s, man, we did we were doing everything. Yeah, it's, um, probably, it's probably a little fuzzy, I'd imagine. It was, yeah, dude. <laughs> we we were at that reunion show that you were at. We yeah. were fucking reminiscing and talking about stories, and we were just like talking about some of the shit. And honestly, we were like, I can't believe that like one of us didn't die. <laughs> like it was that bad at one point where we were like, just take somas and Xanax and then be fucking sniffing cocaine and like I mean I don't know this is probably not good for you guys listeners but it was rock and roll so yeah although we were a punk rock band we all grew up listening to like Motley Crue in the metal era so we were sort of like liked that party lifestyle and we're like fuck we're young like we're kids that came from nothing we're getting to live the time of our life let's do whatever the fuck we wanted and we came from a, a suburban neighborhood where there wasn't much to do but sit around and skateboard and drink 40s and 
do some acid here and there and shit like that. So we would, we, in the early 2000s, man, I remember there was this one night, it was me and the merch guy for uh, the band called Homegrown. And we were sitting at the table on the bus and somebody had gotten some cocaine and somebody had a bunch of Xanax. And I was like, hey, let's see how much of this we can do and see if we live. <laughs> so Xanax being a complete downer and cocaine being a complete upper, those are not the two that you're supposed to mix yeah. together. Um, and so we just laid out line back and forth. And we would just do a line of Xanax, do a line of coke, hang out for a little bit. Do a line of Xanax, do a line. And we did this and we were just drinking Jack Daniels. And my cousin, he told us the next day because we eventually passed out and I don't remember much of it. I have like... Like what looks like photographs stuck in my head of like yeah. images, but that's it. <laughs> my cousin Matt was like, dude, it was so fucked up because you guys would literally just be eyeballing each other, just talking and talking and talking, and you both would just stop. And then all of a sudden your eyes would close and your fucking heads would go down. And then somebody'd wake up and make a noise, another one would wake up and we'd start talking. And it was he was like, You guys didn't know that you were both falling asleep. <laughs> so he was back and forth and back. It was so crazy. That was the uh, that was the dumb shit. But um yeah, so we had a camera crew come out with us and record um, all the footage of behind the scenes, and it, we, it was eventually titled Seven Deadly Sins, and if you haven't seen it, no matter who you are, you want to watch this, Yeah. because it's just, it's intense. Like, yeah. if you ever wanted to be in a band and be on tour, like, you watch this, and you're like, that's fucking fun. And then there's, like, this one scene where um, we were hammered, and our guitarist, Jeremiah, he got really drunk, and Nick was trying to sleep at the time. And so we went into our bunks, and then Jeremiah was just yelling shit and being... Like, he was so out of his mind wasted. And then him and Nick got into it, and it was like a full... One step away from being a fist fight, but uh, like, he spit on him, he ripped off his curtain, our bus got trashed, and I had this, this huge argument between them. And, and this is all on camera. Yeah, and so when they gave us the edit, they talked about that, and I was like, dude, show it. Like, that's that shit happens. We've been friends since we were teenagers. Yeah. People get drunk, people fight. You know, like, and so, yeah, so we actually show that on the, on the fucking, wow. on the DVD. It's good shit though. Cause it's, you know, I mean, it's like a real DVD. You see what yeah. it was like hard, to be. Hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah, George is right. <laughs> it's, it's stressful. Yes. Um, cool. Um, just real quick. I have two guest questions for okay. you <laughs> okay. from... From River Ray Bella Janky. Uh-huh. She she demanded that I ask you these. Okay. First one is so. Do you like cheetahs? <laughs> oh man, that's a great question. I like Cheetos. Like Cheetos or Cheetos? See, at first Amber thought it was Cheetos, Cheetos. but I was like, no, no, I heard Cheetos, Cheetos. and River was like, yes, yeah, Cheetos. Oh, like the animal. Yes, the animal. I mean, they're aren't uh, they like the fastest animal ever? Right? And Cheetos the fastest? Yeah. They that's are, right? Animal, yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. So I'm in a cheetah. So you're into it. Okay, cool. I'm in a cheetah. Yeah. When I was, well, actually when I was um, 17. <laughs> I can't believe you tie a story into this. <laughs> my, my, my bed sheets were fucking cheetah, dude. The cheetah print? Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's the really ladies done. probably love that, yeah. Yeah, man. It was, <laughs> it was pretty hot. All right. And question number two. So how's all your trees in your backyard? Oh, man. You went swimming today, and you experienced yes. that they need to be trimmed. Yes, they dump bad. a lot of stuff in your pool. Yeah, it's all the, they're seeding right now. I think yes. so. That's like that's like a equivalent to a male 
splooging yes. everywhere. It's so the, the tree is sperming all over all your pool. Over, all over the pool. So, the so not good. Not good. No, the trees need to be trimmed. All right, there you go, River. There's your answers. There's your answers. There's some stuff sitting in there that you probably shouldn't listen to. <laughs> now that I think about the fact that we said that. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, kind of how she wanted me to close out I appreciate that. this podcast. I mean, it's a pretty great episode. I think we're at, we're at a good time. All right. Well, um, there's some upcoming stuff. Yeah, please. Absolutely. Um, yes, promote stuff. Uh, okay, so the biggest secret, which I haven't announced yet, and nobody knows about this. And you want to announce it right here on my podcast? Actually, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm honored, but yeah, actually, are you I sure? Probably, <laughs> it's actually that big of a secret that I probably shouldn't. Um, but I am going to... Uh, Sorry, all you mess fans <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. tuned in and just got really excited. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they'd be bummed out or happy about it. I don't know. But I'll tell you when the mic goes off. Um, cool. But no, I am going to Australia first week of August. First week of August? Yeah. And I'm doing like three or four acoustic shows over there. In That's Australia, awesome. is it like a Tony Lovato solo show, or like it is Tony Lovato of Tony Mest. Lovato of Mest. Gotcha. And then I'm doing um, some songwriting and some songwriting and mentoring music mentoring for some bands, pop punk bands within a company over there that's bringing me over there. So I'm that's gonna awesome. work with them in the studio and then do some acoustic shows and do some promotion for the three or four shows. And I love Australia. That's so. great. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you also have Riot Fest. Oh, yeah, Riot Fest. We're playing Riot Fest with... Uh, no Doubt's headlining, I believe. No Doubt's one of the headliners. Snoop Dogg, Rancid's playing their full record, and Outcome the Wolves. I know that we are on the same stage as No Doubt, which is pretty rad. Nice. So it'll be a fun... So, yeah, that's, that's so, in Chicago, right? September... So it's... Yeah, the most American date ever, September 11th. Oh. Yeah, real, real Debbie Downer. Let's have a riot, then. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, my, it's my buddy's birthday, so... Cool. And his daughter's birthday, so it'll yeah. be fun. So um, I realized we've kind of gone this whole time without acknowledging how we know each other. Oh, yeah. Which is through Highway to Havasu. Yep. Um, and I just want to extend a really sincere thank you because you're donating music to the project. Yeah, yeah, I gave him my, my entire catalog, actually. I was like, here, <laughs> dude, do whatever you want with it. Yeah. And then, and then I'm writing some shit. Yeah, you. you're doing a lot of music for it, and yeah. we really, really appreciate it because that's such a huge part of a film know, budget, you know? It is. And I'm probably making you realize that you made a huge mistake. You don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Trust me, I know. And Jeff's like, hey, we got to do this. And I'm like, but I have, like, life happening. and <laughs> Australia and right Yeah, coast. and I got to practice for this and that. And he's like, okay, you've been working on that songs? And I was like, yeah, but... Michelle's at work, so I got this fucking 10-month-old who just won't leave me alone, so... <laughs> the kid is always there! But, but yeah, no, it's really fun actually writing for this movie because he'll give me a scene, and normally when I write music, it's something based on my life or something, yeah. you know? So it's a totally different totally different way of writing music and where I'm attached to it, but not completely attached to it, mm-hmm. so it's a little more open, and I'm doing music that like I wouldn't typically... I'm like program drum beats and yeah. weird noises and shit. So is that like, possibly like a new thing that you might get into? No. Is, no. <laughs> well, doing music from music, or, yeah, like having that visual inspiration. And yeah, having yeah. A score I would kind of. I would love doing that stuff because, like you said, like I think. Well, I think when watching movies too, you if you fucking watch a movie without the music behind it, yeah, or just mute it and you watch a scene, yeah, it's just so different. Yeah. Than how much. The emotion that the music actually gives you, and you don't realize it when you're in a movie theater watching it, and the speakers are blasting and shit. Like that's causing yeah. your fucking emotions unconsciously, you know. Mm-hmm. So like, for me, it's fun to watch a scene and be like, "All right, well, how would I feel doing this?" And then like, fuck around the piano and fucking strings and make noise, you know. Like it's something I definitely would like to get into. Yeah. I don't know if I'm talented enough to do it, but I want to try. 
you know. We'll see how it goes for Highway to Hammersmith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll test, all... <laughs> I'll test it on your movie. <laughs> for all you uh, film film folks out there, cool. watch out for Tony Lovato, uh, film composer. Yeah, and then there's actually something cool that's happening with the thing that I'm not going to tell you. Okay. And the movie. So oh, yeah? you can announce that at, at a later date. Awesome. Yeah. So just... Watch for that, folks. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, the last order of business is the sign-off. Side, I, I'm having a hard time remembering the words. Sidekick uh, Back Radio. Sidekick Back Radio. Yeah, fuck it. Sidekick Back Radio. What?